Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Alan Francis will join us to discuss saving normal. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, through the years, the DSM, or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, has gained huge societal significance because it sets the crucial boundary between normality and mental illness and determines many important aspects of people's lives. Well, our guest today, Dr. Alan Francis, was the chairperson of the DSM-4 Task Force and part of the leadership group for DSM-3 and DSM-3 Revised. At the time of publication of the DSM-4, called Dr. Francis the most powerful psychiatrist in America. He is currently Professor Emeritus and former chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Duke University School of Medicine and author of several academic and popular works on the subject. He has penned the new book, Saving Normal, in Insider Revolts Against Out-of-Control Psychiatric Diagnoses, DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Everyday Life. And he joins us today to discuss this very important issue. Uh, Dr. Francis, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for inviting me. It's really a fascinating book you've written here, uh, Saving Normal, in which you really talk about how out of control like psychiatric diagnosis has become with the release of the DSM-5. I'm curious, what caused you to write this book? Well, I was partly responsible for the problem. When we worked on DSM-4, we felt we had done a pretty good job in containing diagnostic inflation, but we failed to anticipate or prevent what turned out to be three major new false epidemics of psychiatric disorder. Attention deficit disorder has tripled in extent from about 3 or 4% to 11% of all kids. And get this, 20% of teenage boys are diagnosed with ADD, 10% of teenage boys are on medication. These numbers are more than three times what was the situation before DSM-4. I think that the uh, rates of autism have increased out of all proportion. It's now 40 times more common than when we prepared DSM-4, and the rates of bipolar disorder have doubled. We tried very hard to be conservative, but we we didn't anticipate the power of outside forces to um, twist and misuse what we were doing. If something can be misused in the diagnostic manual, there's an advantage to misusing it, it will be misused. And with ADD, it was the powerful, powerful impact of two things. One, the Drug companies got new products that were expensive and on patent. And they also got the ability, four years after we did DSM-4, to advertise directly to the public. So they took the airwaves, the Internet, magazines, every conceivable form of, of advertising outlet with the powerful message that ADD is common, often missed, due to a chemical imbalance. And if you give your kids some of this new expensive medicine, he'll do much better in school. And teachers liked it with the idea that it would make um, classes less disruptive. It turned out that being wildly overdiagnosed, that studies in several different countries show that ADD is twice as common in the youngest kid in the class as it is in the older kid in the class. 
And what that means is that we're redefining immaturity as a mental disorder and drugging up the kids as a way of dealing with the fact that they're more than usually active in the class and it's easier for everyone to quiet them down that way. But that's not the right way of doing things. The revenue from ADD drugs has jumped from $40 million in 1994 to $10 billion. And it would make a lot more sense to be spending that money on the schools rather than on labeling kids and giving them medicine. So I feel responsible. We didn't do anything particularly that would have resulted in this jump, but we certainly didn't stop it. And if I had to do all over again, I would have had cautions in the book to try to alert clinicians parents, teachers, not to use this diagnosis for every kid who's more active than usual, to reserve the kids who really need it. And similar examples drawn throughout the manual, we didn't do anything substantively terrible, but we certainly didn't do anything preventively successful to curb diagnostic exuberance and the inflation and diagnosis and the excessive use of medication. So is it really then that it's not so much the criteria for these particular conditions that have changed, it's just the misuse of the criteria led to this ballooning of diagnoses? Well, I think in one area there was a big change. We added Asperger's to DSM-4, hadn't existed before. We knew that that would increase the rate of autism by maybe three or four times, but there was enough evidence that there were kids with this problem and that possible treatment might help and and maybe knowing about it would be helpful to parents, teachers, and clinicians. So we included it in, but we never anticipated that the rate of autism would jump by 40 or 50 times. And that's what happened. We expected a three or four times jump. Instead, it went from less than one in 2000 to lately one in 60. And it's going up every year. And the main point here is that People aren't changing. It's not like they're more autistic kids. It's not like the vaccine. One of the common panic things was the vaccine was causing autism because the reported rates were attributed to vaccine. That was nonsense. It turned out to be scientific fraud. But lots of parents aren't vaccinating their kids for fear of autism. And the change has nothing to do with more autistic behavior in the world and everything to do with relabeling. So very small changes in the way mental disorders are defined can result in in millions and millions of people who previously didn't have the mental disorder suddenly being labeled with one. And for Asperger's, the reason is is clear. It has to do with the fact that school services often depend on having the diagnosis. Whenever there's a benefit that comes from having a diagnosis, it tends to be used loosely. And very poorly trained people are diagnosing Asperger's very carelessly, partly under pressure because it results in, in more school services. This has two two very bad effects. One, it has one good effect, that those kids get more school attention. But the two bad effects are that they often get a label that they can't get rid of, even though it's wrong. At least half the labels are wrong, probably more. Um, The diagnosis is no longer stable, no longer reliable and careful. Study of the same kids find that the diagnosis is often just dead wrong. The label tends to stick to them, though, even though it was made carelessly. And the stigma of that can be quite devastating in many families for many children. And the other thing is it distorts the school system. If uh, too many services are going to some kids, it means that too few are going to others as a misallocation. Here, we made a change that led to an exaggeration of autism, so we're part of the problem. But what we failed to anticipate was how that would be magnified because of the school service issue. And so we're partly to blame, and then the uh, misuse of it is partly to blame. I think whenever a diagnosis results in some benefit, that diagnosis will be inflated. And I think we took 
too little um, heed of that risk. We were very worried. We rejected 92 of 94 suggestions for the diagnosis, so we were very conservative. But every time we made a change, it turned out to bite us. What part of the medical establishment do you think is particularly to blame for these medical misdiagnoses? Well, it's really interesting. 80% of psychiatry is not done by psychiatrists. 80% of psychiatric medicine is prescribed by primary care doctors. The context is that one in five Americans is taking a psychiatric drug every day, one in five. And most of this is prescribed by non-psychiatrists, often prescribed after a seven-minute visit to the doctor. The doctor has been primed by a tremendously active marketing campaign pushing the drug. Patients have been primed by the advertising so they come in wanting the drug. The doctor usually has free samples. The easiest way to get a patient out of the office in, in seven minutes is to give them a free sample. I think that this disrespects the importance of, of psychiatric diagnosis. Made well, a psychiatric diagnosis can be a turning point for the better in a person's life. Carelessly done, it can be a turning point for the markedly worse in a person's life. But when a diagnosis helps explain the problem accurately, gives the person a wonderful feeling of suddenly I know what's wrong with me. It's well understood. I'm not uniquely damned. I'm not the only person with this problem. And we can now form a plan that's likely to help me because people understand it. When it's poorly done, the label can haunt the person for life. It can prevent them from getting jobs. It can prevent them from adopting children, from um, flying a plane, all sorts of things that can be connected to a, a stigmatizing diagnosis. And especially when that diagnosis is inaccurate, it leads to, to tragic and unnecessary situations, often leads to unnecessary medicine. It's easy to over-diagnose. It's hard to get rid of a diagnosis once made. And once the treatment starts, it's very hard to stop it, even if it's never been helpful, and even if now the harms outweigh the benefits. So I think it's very important that the moment of diagnosis, which is usually done on the worst day of a person's life, be done carefully. For people with severe problems, it's crucial that they get quick treatment, and they're being missed in the shuffle. There's so much over-treatment of the mildly ill and the worried well that the really sick are, are terribly neglected and often wind up in, in jail or homeless. But the milder um, problems respond wonderfully well to placebo, to time, to natural human resilience and resourcefulness, to the help of family, to the fact that stressors change, people get adapted to life problems, and support systems come into play. So that if a problem is mild, and especially if it's transient, best thing to do is watch and wait, not diagnose on the first visit. But our insurance system requires a diagnosis right away for the person to listen to get paid. It encourages overdiagnosis. The drug companies love overdiagnosis. And I think that, that psychiatrists and other mental health clinicians have been seduced into thinking that diagnoses and treatments are always helpful and don't realize the, the hidden unintended consequences and risks that offer the part of it. So is this just a uh, uniquely uh, American problem? Uh, a ballooning of diagnoses occurred in other countries as well? Well, it's really interesting. It, uh, our problems tend to spread. So the rest, the rest of the world is behind us, and it's happening all over the world, and, and at least half the talks I give are in other countries. And they have a similar problems, growing uh, rates of ADD, autism, that are difficult to understand and, 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 and to uh, deal with. And it's not just a problem in psychiatry. Overdiagnosis, overtesting, and overtreatment is a problem throughout medicine, especially in the United States. We, we spend almost twice as much on medical care as most, most of all countries, and we get lousy results on, on a whole variety of outcome measures. We come in the middle of the pack. We're far
far outspending everyone else. It's terrible for the economy. It's terrible for the people who get tests and treatments they don't need, and it often causes them more hardship than if they didn't have these tests and treatments. And the rest of the world is being to catch up. It's part of the commercialization of medicine, the over-reliance on technology. Sometimes if there's a tool to use, a toy to play with, it's very hard for doctors to resist using it. But often the things that are picked up by the new tool turn out to be incidental and not going to markedly affect the person's life. But the treatment given to the incidental problem can sometimes be devastating. The best example of this is prostate cancer. It used to be until last year that all men after a certain age were supposed to be tested every year for uh, their PSA. It turns out that only people at high risk should be tested but because for everyone else, you die at the same point in your life. The prostate cancer that's picked up won't kill you, but the treatments will make your life miserable with sexual dysfunctional kinds of things. Very often, excessive testing and excessive diagnosis in medicine leads not only to complete waste, but also to harmful consequences. And psychiatry is just a special case of what's happening in American medicine, and we're beginning to spread this problem around the world. Uh, so given all these external forces that are kind of pushing these excessive diagnoses, is it possible to get back to normal, as you put it in the last part of your book? Well, I, I, I remain hopeful. This is really a David and Goliath struggle. The, the um, medical industrial complex spends tens of billions of dollars promoting excessive diagnosis and treatment. The budget of everyone can combined opposed to it would be at most in the tens of millions of dollars. So there's a huge uh, disproportion between the forces that are um, successfully having us way overboard in our, our testing and treatment and those that are resisting it. But the forces resisting it has some very smart people involved, especially the British Medical Journal and some of the American medical journals are very much focused now on overdiagnosis. The press has really picked this up. Investigative journalists are all over it. The guideline makers are increasingly aware of the fact that any guideline that changes the disease definition can be very dangerous to people misidentified. So there is a definite pushback. And David sometimes wins fights against Goliath. The most recent and telling model for this is big tobacco. So just you know, 25 years ago, who would have thought that we would have kept smoking down below 20%? And the reason for it was that the tobacco industry was absolutely outrageous. And once this became widely known publicly, their control over the politicians disappeared, ran away from them instead of supporting them. I'm hopeful the same thing happens with big, big pharma. In the United States, it is ridiculous that we can't negotiate prices with drug companies. The new hepatitis C drug is a thousand bucks a pill. $1,000 a pill. takes 84 pills for a course of treatment. That's $84,000 for a course of treatment. That same course of treatment costs $900 in Egypt, and in Egypt they're making money. So it's a complete ripoff. It's kind of like your money or your life. Uh, the drugs are priced whatever the market will bear. The drug companies have not been particularly successful in coming up with new drugs. Their major talent is marketing and controlling politicians. And I think if there's enough public outrage, if there's enough professional um, integrity, and with the journals and the newspapers really making this an everyday issue, uh, there's some hope that uh, David will beat the lies on this one and that common sense will prevail. Uh, so what would you be your advice then for the everyday person out there seeking a diagnosis? How do you think they should approach any diagnosis they receive? Should they be wary of it? Should they be a little skeptical or should they try and strive for, for more normality? The best protection against commercialized medicine is an informed consumer. 
And I think the more you know about the, your situation and can map it against what's known about the diagnosis and the treatment and the skeptical concern about overdiagnosis, the better off you are. No one listening to this program should stop their medicine. Even though lots of people are taking medicine they don't need, stopping it can often be catastrophic because the medicine will often have withdrawals problems that may be even worse than the problems that you started uh, taking the medicine for. So stopping medicine should be as carefully thought out as starting medicine, uh, I'm suggesting should be. And that means that you don't abruptly stop, that you do it under medical supervision, and you do it very, very slowly to avoid the withdrawal symptoms. I think that parents need to protect kids. There's uh, drug companies focused on the kidney market when they saturated or succeeded in saturating the adult market. And kids made the best customers in a way because if you get them early, you might keep them for life. So the kids are being saturated with not just drugs for ADD, but uh, 4% of teenagers are in antidepressants, questionable efficacy. Uh, antipsychotics have been liberally used and, and I think scandalously used for childhood bipolar disorder and for treating any sort of behavioral problems in kids. And antipsychotics cause obesity, which leads to very often diabetes and heart disease and a shorten lifespan. We shouldn't be using drugs experimentally on kids without understanding the long-term consequences. The benefits are often weak. The harms are often great and, and sometimes indeterminate because who knows what effect a drug given to a five-year-old will have on his developing brain. It takes decades to figure this out and if ever. So I think that, that, that by and large, everyone should feel cautious. If drugs are used, if they should be used because there's a clear indication. If someone has a severe psychiatric problem, they need treatment right away. No waiting involved. They should be treated immediately and, and effectively. But for people who present with mild to moderate problems, particularly if these are fairly transitory and in response to stress, the best play is watchful waiting, trust to natural healing, try to change the stressors and the social supports to, to bring um, a different kind of uh, perspective to the situation. And psychotherapy can be enormously helpful for mild to moderate problems. And many medications should just be reserved for severe problems or very persisting problems that haven't responded to um, everything else tried first. Uh, well, just to close, since we're running a little out of time, uh, so it is now the DSM-5. Overall, then, do you think uh, psychiatry has made progress since the DSM-4 or caused more harm than good? Well, DSM-5 is... I thought very dangerous. It, it takes a situation of diagnostic inflation that inherited and um, risks making it to diagnostic hyperinflation. And DSM-5, normal grief, can be misconstrued as major depressive disorder. Uh, my forgetting of old age becomes minor neurocognitive disorder. Um, my grandchildren's occasional temper tantrums can be easily made into mood dysregulation disorder. My binge eating becomes binge eating disorder and it goes on. Adult ADD will become much easier to diagnose. So DSM-5 went in just the wrong direction. It was time to be cautioning people about excessive diagnosis rather than encouraging more of the same, reason more of the same. Don't, don't accept a diagnosis from a primary care doc after seven minutes and don't use free samples. Well, then maybe just to further then, uh, what would be your final recommendations? Well, I don't 
think that we can allow professionals and professional societies to call the final shots on their diagnoses. They have a financial conflict of interest and an even more severe, an intellectual and emotional conflict of interest. Experts always want to expand their system, their diagnoses and their pets. They never realize the risks involved. It's not true for just for psychiatry. It's true across the board in medicine. We have to have a different way of approaching all of medical illness that appreciates the risks of overdiagnosis as well as the benefits of not missing the patients who aren't already covered. Our guest today was uh, Dr. Alan Francis. He has written the new book, Saving Normal, An Insider's Revolt Against Out-of-Control Psychiatric Diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Ordinary Life. He was also Professor Emeritus and former chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences in Duke University and the chair of the DSM-4 Task Force. And uh, Dr. Francis, I want to thank you again for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, it's very important for you to be spreading this word, and so I'm very grateful, and I hope it helps your listeners. Thanks very much. All right. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.